The sermon text this morning is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 34 through 42. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, when you're overseas for a while, you kind of lose touch with uh, a lot of things, and I kind of woke up this morning and I was thinking to myself, I'm not quite sure what people speaking are supposed to wear. So I made a choice, wasn't sure, but I see about 15 people dressed just like me, so I, I feel good about that. <laughs> kind of nailed it. Thank you, uh, Miriam, for reading uh, the passage this morning. Actually, the passage that we're going to be looking at is, is almost the entirety of John Uh, chapter 4. We didn't take the time to read it, but if you open your Bibles and you look along as we talk, um, you can follow the narrative and the story as as we go. A few years ago, a friend was telling Christy and I about a cross-cultural experience she had at a mall right here in the U.S. She was at a really large mall in the Midwest and that had, you know, all kinds of kiosks and different stands And she had some overseas missions experience, and she noticed this woman who looked like she was from a very unreached people group, maybe somewhere in in Nepal. So she went up to this woman and just began a conversation with her. She asked where she was from and what were the circumstances that brought her here to the United States. It was really kind of a very normal conversation. And soon this, this woman at the kiosk uh, began to cry, and my friend asked, what, why are you crying? What did, what did I say? And she said, I've worked in this mall for more than two years, and this is the first time anyone has ever even had a conversation with me. You know, missiologists provide a kind of a helpful explanation of this situation. Uh, we often categorize people around us in really one of three ways, and we interact with them accordingly. We categorize people as part of the the scenery. They're just kind of the people we pass on the road or the people who fill the mall or the people who are standing at the intersection with the sign. We often, we see them as scenery. Maybe we see people as uh, part of the machinery. These are the people who do stuff for us. The guy who sprays the house for bugs or delivers the pizza or bags our groceries, and we interact with these people in kind of a transactional way. The third group are those who we actually 
interact with. They're people that we actually see. This woman at the mall for two years was completely overlooked by people and probably overlooked by a lot of Christians who saw her just really as part of the scenery or saw her as the machinery when they bought something. But they never stopped to see her as a person. You know, in John 4, Jesus is encountering a woman who most would have seen really as part of the scenery or maybe even the machinery, but Jesus saw her and gave her new life. So as we come kind of parachuting into John chapter 4, we have seen Jesus introduced by John as the word of, of uh, the word made flesh dwelling among us in chapter 2. The dawn of a new age is announced as the long-awaited Messiah breaks into the scene, performing a miracle at Canaan. And in chapter 3, Jesus engages with an educated Jew and explains how a person enters the kingdom of God. And now in our story, we find Jesus engaging with an uneducated, non-Jewish woman showing us who can enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not for one race, but it's for all people. In fact, in just a few years from this passage, after his death and resurrection, Jesus is going to dispatch the disciples from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And here in chapter 4, we find Jesus leaving Judea, going into Samaria, and engaging really in the first cross-cultural outreach of his ministry. In many ways, he's modeling to his disciples and to us what it means to engage in cross-cultural ministry. Not only does he model it, but he teaches his disciples that ministry is deeply satisfying. I think most of us, including myself, are quite intimidated with the idea of cross-cultural evangelism. In fact, we're just afraid of evangelism, period, if we're honest with ourselves. Evangelism, we often think, and especially the cross-cultural version, requires special gifts and probably special training. And when we think about our own community and we think about, you know, the Muslim neighbor up the road, we hope that there is someone with that special gift and training who is going to engage that person with the gospel. We certainly don't feel equipped to do it. Not only this, but we, we find ourselves really with full plates. Most of our ministry time is already devoted to really good things within the Christian community. We oftentimes are fighting for joy together, yet we find it really difficult as a community to strategize together to bring the gospel to those nearby who are quite different from us. I think this passage this morning is so helpful and in many ways so freeing because Jesus shows us, really, the simplicity of cross-cultural ministry. The simplicity of talking to people about their need of a Savior and bringing them to Jesus. Not only this, but he shows us the joy that comes through evangelism, the joy of doing the will of the Father. So we're going to begin just by considering this example in the narrative section as Jesus brings the gospel cross-culturally to this Samaritan woman. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on a journey because they have learned that the Pharisees were kind of had this growing frustration with them. So they leave a Jewish area of Judea in the south 
and they head to Galilee in the north. But right in the middle is this region of Samaria. Now, the Jews deeply resented the Samaritan people. In that region, centuries before, Jews had intermarried with pagan people and created this blended faith. There's a bit of Judaism and a bit of paganism all mixed together, where they worshiped the God of Israel along with other pagan deities. And the devout Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans accepted the writings of Moses, but rejected all the rest of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Rather than looking to the temple in Jerusalem, they had established their own temple at the Mount Gerizim, which was a place where Abraham had first made a sacrifice when entering the promised land. The Jews who were devout would not even eat or drink from the same cups or bowls as the Samaritans, and oftentimes Jews, when they were traveling to Galilee, instead of going through Samaria, would go around, a long ways around, to get up into Galilee to avoid Samaria altogether. But John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. See, Jesus was on a cross-cultural mission to bring the glory of the gospel to the very people that the Jews resented. You can imagine the scene. It's a hot day. There's little shade along the way. The road is dusty. And the disciples and Jesus are tired from the journey. John is working hard to show us that this word, the very word of God, had become flesh and he is dwelling among us. He experiences the thirst and the hunger of the journey. So Jesus sits down at a well to rest. The disciples go off into the city to buy food. And soon after this, a Samaritan woman comes along to the well. Now, it would have been really unusual for a woman to come at noon in the heat of the day and to come by herself. So Jesus, he didn't have a bucket, so he asked her to draw from the well to give him a drink. Now, not only were Jews not allowed to drink from a Samaritan's bucket, even more, Jews commonly said that Samaritan women were constantly unclean. A serious Jewish man would never interact with this Samaritan woman. So when she heard this question, she was shocked. She said, my water jar is going to defile you, and besides that, you don't even realize who I am. I'm rejected by my own community. That's why I'm here at noon all by myself. What are you thinking? Asking me for water. But what she doesn't know is that Jesus is actually seeking her. Jesus intentionally broke through these cultural barriers to call her to salvation. You know, every culture in the world has these cultural divisions and animosities. In Africa, they call it tribalism, deep animosity between tribes living near each other, often accentuated by terrible events in history. In some places in China, parents bribe their children to behave by telling them that if they don't do what they're told, the Hui Muslim from the other village is going to come at night and going to steal them and eat them. Do you imagine that as a child? A Chinese pastor told me that I shouldn't talk to Muslims because he was afraid that they were going to kill me. See, what happens is our differing cultures and histories erect these barriers And we avoid people because of it. But not Jesus. He intentionally crossed through 
these great cultural divides to bring the gospel. Now, after she expresses her shock that Jesus would ask her for a drink, look at what Jesus did. He knows that she is the one who is thirsty. So he turns the conversation away from the temporal, cultural differences and disagreements. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water, and I would give it to you. Now, she didn't see really the depth of what Jesus was saying. So she says, I thought you asked me to draw water. You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. If you are offering water without the means to deliver it, you must be greater than this prophet Jacob, who he himself had to dig this well. So Jesus answers, he says, when you drink from this well, you're going to get thirsty again, just like Jacob did, just like his descendants, his livestock, and every single person who has drank from this well since then, they get thirsty again. But let me explain to you about the living water that I have to offer. You see, there is in you and there is in us a thirst. You know it's there. You're trying to satisfy with all kinds of things that will never work. What you really need is spiritual water. You need a living water. And that is what I am offering you. This living water that Jesus is speaking of is the very Spirit of God that gives spiritual life. It's a phrase that's really ripe with prophetic fulfillment. In Isaiah 12, 3, the prophet Isaiah says, In the day of salvation, God's people will draw from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, the Lord says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live. And this is what Jesus was offering to this woman. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus is offering to you what your soul most deeply desires. The emptiness you sense in your soul, your desire for meaning that keeps you, after, keeps you chasing after promotions or success, or the hunger for pleasure that keeps you buying more and doing more and trying more, none of which satisfies this emptiness and shame that you may feel that keeps you chasing after relationships that never really seem to satisfy. Jesus is offering the, the satisfaction you were created for, the very living God dwelling in you. Now for the Christian, looking at this through the lens of cross-cultural missions, there's something really freeing at this point. The thirsty woman has the same thirst and desire that every other person, including ourselves, who has ever walked the face of the earth has. I sometimes am, and I used to be even more, very intimidated by people who were from other cultures. How could I possibly relate to them? But the reality is, people are fundamentally the same. A single 30-year-old in China is a thirsty sinner looking for meaning, just like my neighbor right here in Raleigh. Now, what does that mean for evangelism? Sometimes we don't evangelize because we're kind of afraid to approach people because we imagine them to be so different than us. Think about the programmer in your office back in the days when you went to your office. The programmer from India who speaks with a really heavy accent and you have a hard time understanding. And then at lunch, he gets out some food that 
wow, it's just different. He's much more like you than you think. How about the lady that's checking the groceries with the head covering? Or maybe even the man that is now dressing like a woman. We think they're so different from us that we couldn't possibly engage them with the gospel. It's like we think they have this whole other set of needs that the gospel doesn't engage. But the reality is they are like you and me and the Samaritan woman, fellow humans who are thirsty, and you have the living water to offer them. As we return to the story, we see the woman did not understand what Jesus was offering. She was living really with only physical realities in view, and who can blame her? So she said, if I can have water so I don't have to return to this well, please let me have it. How awesome would that be? I guess now we have indoor plumbing, right? How much better would her life be if she didn't have to keep coming back to the well? You know, oftentimes when people encounter Jesus for the first time, they see some advantage that they could get, and they they want it. Friends have said, Jesus seems so wise and powerful. I need to study him more because I want to be a better person. Or Jesus says I can have a new life. That would be great because I hate my life. It's terrible. I would love a new start. Or people have said, you know, you follow Jesus and you have a really nice family. I want a nice family someday. So maybe if I follow Jesus, I can get a nice family too. It's very common for people who are unspiritual to view Jesus for the temporal advantages that they think they can gain. But what does Jesus do with this? He doesn't correct her misunderstanding, but he guides the conversation so she can realize that she is thirsty. Only as she sees her sin would she begin to sense her spiritual need, the source of her thirst. So he says, go call your husband. To which she says, hoping to move on from there, oh, I don't have one. But look how kindly Jesus answers. He gently commends her, in verse 17, for her truthfulness, while pointing out that he knows her. She has been married many times, but currently is sleeping with someone who she's not married to, bringing her great shame and really isolation from her community. You can imagine the shock this woman feels, right? How does this stranger know my deepest secrets? How could he read my life like an open book? He must be a prophet. He must know some things. Maybe he is the prophet that I read about in the Pentateuch. Maybe he's the Messiah. But rather than engaging in the depths of her heart, the woman diverts the conversation to a religious controversy, a long-disputed uh, disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. She asks, you know what, you're a prophet. You must know some things, so tell me. Is this the mountain, Mount Gerizim, where we're supposed to worship, or is it in Jerusalem where you Jews worship? Which one's the right one? You see, the religions of the world do not provide forgiveness of sin and satisfaction in God, but what they do provide is a mirage of safety. People can feel safe behind their dogma. If I keep the traditions, I should be all right in the end. This kind of religious, evasive action took place all the time when we had conversations 
with Muslim friends. When you start boring in and start talking about sin, so often if maybe a religious, a devout friend would ask, do you think Muhammad was a prophet? Or would say something like, you Christians worship three gods. How can you tell me anything spiritual? Maybe an uneducated or nominal Muslim would say, are you allowed to eat pork in your religion? My grandma says that if I eat pork, I'll go to hell. And I love my grandma. She can't be wrong. So do we at that point bog down into these difficulties and tricky questions? Is this really the essence of evangelism, to fix people's understanding about Christianity? You know, what is really awesome about engaging people cross-culturally here in the United States is that people who have immigrated here or who have come here from other countries, especially developing ones, most of these people are really religious people. And they love to talk about religion. They're not like secular Americans who can't even talk about that. They know religion is important and are glad to engage it. Let that be an encouragement to you to talk to people. They're oftentimes more than happy to talk to you about faith. But unfortunately, sometimes we think we need to be experts in Islam to talk to a Muslim or we need to be experts in Catholicism to talk to a person from South America. We don't need to be experts. We need to know the gospel. And we need to simply bring the conversation back to Jesus. So how does Jesus, who is exemplifying cross-cultural ministry, deal with this religious question of which temple is correct and draw her back to the gospel? See in uh, 21 through 23. What Jesus says is he says, I understand your question. But the reality is, neither of these temples are going to bring you what you really need. What is vital for salvation is not where someone worships, but how someone worships. Both of these temples are insufficient. You see, the Father is calling worshipers from among the nations. No longer is Jerusalem going to be the dwelling place of God, but God is going to inhabit people from every nation. He will dwell in people through the Spirit, calling worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. One commentator said, the prophets had spoken of a coming day when not one sanctuary alone, but the whole earth would be the habitation of the name and the glory of God. And that's what Jesus was doing in this moment. The Father is calling worshipers it's the core, the essence of missions. Who will worship in spirit and in truth. How do we worship in spirit and truth? By turning from the lies of false religion and non-religion. Turning away from self-effort and our attempts to satisfy our thirst with things that don't satisfy. And in, in, in turn, turning to faith in Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose from death. You know, if you look closely at verses 21 through 23, you see that Jesus does acknowledge where her faith is wrong. He says, no, salvation doesn't come from the Samaritans. God's plan of redemption flowed through Judah. At best, they were believing kind of a half-truth. But he doesn't belabor that difference, but quickly offers hope. He says, the time has come 
And in fact, it's right now when the Father is seeking worshipers and the Father is seeking you. The woman perhaps feels a bit overwhelmed and you know, kind of throws up her hands and she says, I know all of these questions will be answered when the Messiah comes. He's going to be the great teacher. He's going to teach us everything. To which Jesus very directly says, the one who is speaking to you now is the Messiah. You know, this is really the heart of missions and evangelism. Simple conversations where we lead people to the Messiah. You know, these are beautiful and sacred conversations. A few years ago, I was talking with a Muslim friend who asked that question, what do you think of Muhammad? I carefully said, well, he's someone I have a lot of respect for, but there's a lot I don't know about him. But I do know that he himself was not sure if his sins could be forgiven. I said, if Muhammad himself was not sure, is there any possible way that you, a common Muslim, could know? Of course, this brought a little embarrassed smile to his face and said, no, there's no way I could know. And he said, God decides if my sins are forgiven. I can never know that. To which I said, you know, Jesus himself forgave people's sins. He said that you and I could know that our sins are forgiven even more. He said that you can know God, not as some distant, angry deity, but as a father. We can be loved by God and we can know him through Jesus. Do you want your sins forgiven? Don't you really want to know God? We're not trying to minimize, you know, the objections and the legitimate questions, but the goal is to bring people to encounter the Messiah and to invite them to believe. So what have we seen Jesus do so far in this story First of all, Jesus did not remain in his own tribe, but intentionally crossed culture and kindly and gently brought the gospel to this woman. Secondly, rather than religious debate, Jesus simply kept pointing this woman back to her need and the solution, which was himself. So after we see this, Example of Jesus' first cross-cultural mission, we're now going to see the satisfaction that Jesus has from engaging in this work. Beginning in verse 27, we come back to our story. The disciples come back and they see this scene unfolding where Jesus is talking to this woman. And they're wondering, why would Jesus be wasting his time and potentially risking his status to talk to this Samaritan woman. And of course, they didn't want to talk to her directly, so they just kind of you know, talked among themselves and tried to figure out what in the world Jesus was thinking. They didn't even ask Jesus. Maybe they didn't want to embarrass him and sound like they were scolding him. Or maybe they were just in awe. As the disciples were standing there confused, not knowing really the sacredness of that moment and what had just happened, Jesus says, or John says, the woman left her water pot and went into the town to invite the people to come see a man who told, told her everything that she had done. 
See, a change had taken place in this woman. She left the jar, symbolizing the old religious forms, and went and invited the town to come and meet the Messiah. She wasn't really concerned any longer about her shame and rejection because she had encountered the one who had removed her shame. She didn't have any more. It didn't have the power over her that it once did. The community had rejected her, but now she had been invited and sought by the Father, invited into his community. No longer was she controlled by fear as she was safe as an adopted child of the Father. You know, in in missions work, we're often told to find and target people of influence. Jesus sought the person really of least influence that he could have possibly found in Samaria. But look at how God used this woman, changed by the gospel, to bring an entire town to the Savior. You know, when I read this, I wondered, why do we not share the gospel to our community with the same joy and passion that this woman had? You know, perhaps part of the reason is that we ourselves have lost sight of the joy of the gospel in our own lives. So now the disciples come back, the food is purchased, and at hand, and the disciples urge Jesus to eat, but he says to them, In verse 33, he says, I have food to eat that you don't know. To do the Father's will, that is my food. So for Jesus, offering this woman's salvation brought greater joy than any physical comfort. There is greater sustenance and satisfaction in this, offering this woman, inviting this woman, calling this woman into the kingdom of God than any food that the disciples could offer. You know, is it, is it possible that part of our joylessness that we sometimes experience is in part because we are not participating in the Father's work of calling the nations to be worshipers? Have you ever spoken to an unbeliever, even a simple converse, conversation, just mentioned Jesus or just mentioned your faith? Have you ever done that and walked away and thought, that was a total waste of time. What was I thinking? If you've done that, if you've ever spoken out to a person about Christ, you usually walk away. You think, that was unbelievable. That was awesome. Regardless of their response. There's amazing joy in the process of declaring to people the gospel even in very simple ways. It's hard, it's awkward, but I can guarantee you introducing lost people to Jesus will give you a joy like nothing else. And Jesus said, this was greater to him than food. A few years ago, an Australian Chinese brother was passing through uh, our city considering joining our team, and I met him for lunch at, uh, just on the road at a KFC or something. He had already told me that he had shared the gospel with several people that day, and it's, you know, only noon. And he was just sharing as he was going about life. He wasn't, you know, planning anything. He was just meeting people and talking to them. So I kind of dismissed this to him. I was like, wow, you must have a great gift. Which he said, no, it's not a gift. I don't think it's a gift. I just find amazing joy in sharing the gospel. 
fact, he said not long before he, he thought he should take a break from sharing the gospel with people. So he, he had a fast from evangelism. I've never, I've never done that. But he said he, he broke the fast because he was physically ill from not experiencing the joy of sharing the gospel. Can you imagine that? I'm not like that, brother. But I know we experience this joy, this deep joy at times. Over the last two years, as, as persecution increased, many of our coworkers were being arrested, interrogated, and deported. Many of our, um, the advice of many to us, many of our leaders even, were telling us, just pause ministry, just lay low. Just go teach your class. Just pause until the season is over. But we didn't do that because the unbelievable joy of sharing Christ far surpassed the hope of physical comfort or perceived safety. It was profoundly difficult but deeply, deeply satisfying and we would never trade those high-risk situations of sharing the gospel for the promise of less risk. You know, we can, we can plan in our lives for deeper joy. We often strategize for physical comfort, but how often do we strategize for sharing the gospel? You know, as this scene comes to a close, a crowd from the city is coming out to see this Messiah that the woman was testifying about. And seeing the crowd coming, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, they're coming up the road, and Jesus points to them and he says, look, Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. In agriculture, there's four months between sowing the seed and harvest, but Jesus is announcing a completely new era. The kingdom of God functions on a different calendar. This is the era anticipated by the prophet Amos in Amos 9.13, where he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. What's he saying? He's saying, Sowing and reaping is going to happen so quickly, it's just going to be all mixed together. The time has arrived when there's so much opportunity to declare the gospel, that the work of sowing and the work of reaping will be happening together. It's really the language of abundance. The seed of the gospel is so vibrant that some people will be sowing seed, some will be reaping, both are necessary, and both should have equal joy and rejoicing in the process. This process is not going to stop until the glory of the Lord has covered the earth just as the waters cover the sea. You know, Jesus is calling us to join in this mission that cannot fail. As the water of life is offered, people will believe. What amazing encouragement in the task. Our task is really simple. We're to meet people. And to present Jesus to them. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Some plant, some water, some harvest. But it's God who gets the increase. He is the one who does it. In the history of the spread of the gospel, if we step back, we can gain so much encouragement from seeing this beautiful process of sowing and reaping unfold in 1989, back in the good old days, 
about 30 years ago, there were only about three Christians in the nation of Mongolia. In the 90s, missionaries entered into the country and began sharing the gospel, probably in very similar ways to what we just read about. And over time, people began to believe. Now it's nearly impossible to count the Christians in Mongolia. Some have said it's easier to count sheep than it is Christians in Mongolia. Over 500 churches with seminaries and Bible schools, they're sending missionaries out in droves, some of whom are our co-workers in China that we have the privilege of working together, even though we can't even talk to each other. It's pretty awesome. They are now sowing and reaping in new untouched fields. You know, they even have this majestic worship song which we saw some Mongolian Christians sing a few years ago. It's amazing. It captures the new life that these Mongolian Christians have. It describes how in the past the Mongolians used to be warriors riding out on horses to conquer and capture the lands. But now they ride as Christians declaring the glory of Christ. Let's not give in to the lie that our efforts in evangelism are wasted. Not a single moment, not a single word is wasted. We don't know when the harvest is going to be, but we know it is coming. For the last 20 or 30 years, hundreds of missionaries have spread the gospel among Uyghur and Hui people. Chinese Christians have just recently begun their work of cross-cultural missions in much the same way that Jesus has with this woman in Samaria. It's really the season of sowing, and we don't, we don't know. When is the reaping going to come? We don't know. Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be 10 years? We don't know. But it will come. It's going to be a massive harvest. As missionaries have been kicked out, have left, new opportunities have emerged with smartphones and with media. Hui people in very isolated corners of the country, places completely untouched by the gospel, places I could never dream to go, are reading the Bible. Recently, I heard that there are over 40 new downloads of the Hui Bible every single day, and people are reading it. The Uyghur Bible, in the last probably five years or so, 25,000 people have downloaded it and have been reading it and engaging with Christians online about what they're reading. It's amazing. The water of life is being offered in an abundant way. We don't know when, but at some point the word, which does not return void, but produces the fruit for which it was sent out, is going to render a massive harvest of worshipers. So many of you have sown among family, in the workplace, with friends and neighbors. We with you, we anticipate together the harvest. We rejoice knowing that the seed will produce a harvest. The Father is calling worshipers to himself. And in God's field, in God's economy, the sower can rejoice just as much as the reaper because the harvest is promised even before it comes. So what is this passage calling us to do, just briefly in closing? You know, first of all, I think in our modern world, 
it's not really helpful to think of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth so much as places that we go, but as people who we go to. And they're probably all around us, like the woman at the kiosk in the mall. We have, we're surrounded by people who have no one who is engaging them with the gospel. People from the ends of the earth that are living right here among us. Now consider our own salvation and the grace and the mercy, the living water that God has poured out to you. And let that move us cross-culturally. Maybe very practically we could pray this week that you would meet someone who doesn't know the gospel and when you meet them to begin a conversation that directs them towards the Messiah.